Everyone is waiting for something, someone, sometimes anticipating, sometimes agonizing. We all have an expectation for what's to come. Even Jesus arrived with a wait. Although we turn a single page, 400 years of silence spanned the gap between the final prophecies we read in the Old Testament and the birth of Jesus. No prophet, no voice, no signs, no wonders. You can almost hear the questions. Did God care? Had he vanished? Was he ever really there? Finally, with a single cry in a stable in Bethlehem, the silence was broken. The arrival of a baby born in the midst of darkness and despair was hope fulfilled, a miracle in motion. And the good news? In the same way it did 2,000 years ago, Advent brings with it the assurance that no matter what you're waiting on, God promises hope is on the way. I may be biased, but I feel like we've got a great creative team at this church. It put together phenomenal. Guys, my name is Michael Hands. I'm the lead minister here. If you're joining us online or in the room, thank you for coming at 10 a.m. Friends, we've got a saint in the room. And I just got to say it, that Walter Abrahamson is with us today. And it's just so special to have you with us today, Walter. For those of you who don't know, Walter is a legend of the faith and um, a, a patriarch of the Gold Coast. So I love you, mate. It's good to have you with us. Um, if Walter ducks out during the service, it's probably because my sermon was boring. Um, and uh, he's the only one that's allowed to. Friends, on that note, would you join with me as we pray? Gracious God, we thank you so much that we can be here with us, that you can be here with us today, that we don't, we don't ask you to come, we ask that we would be aware of your presence. So Lord, right now, still our hearts. May we be aware of you. If we're new to faith, soften our hearts. If we've been here for so long, soften our hearts. Wherever we are today, Father, may we hear you speak. Not Michael. May your words ring. Less of me, more of you, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. There's this beautiful moment, just side note, there's this beautiful moment in that bumper video when a baby starts crying. Did any other um, parents of newborns just start looking for your own child when that happened? I was like, where is he? Why is he crying? Then I realized that it was Jesus crying, and I realized Benner is nothing like Jesus. Moving right along. Friends, I want to talk to you today about one of my favorite memories of Christmas and when I learned about unmet expectations at Christmas. I love Christmas. Do we have any other Christmas fans in the room? You're not a Christmas fan if you just like said nothing, right? Some people are like, that's, that's not a celebration. Do we have any other Christmas fans in the room? Let us know if you love Christmas online. Do we have any Christmas Grinches in the room? Yeah, we do. Yeah, because uh, you were like, I'm not saying anything to you. Guys, I love Christmas so much. I used to count down from Christmas about 10 years ago um, until I'd see people be like, it's 88 days, it's 70 days. I remember the moment someone came and said, Michael, people really don't like you reminding them of how long it is until their awkward family gathering. And so I'm like, okay, fine. But I love Christmas. 
And, and part of it is the tropes of Christmas, the things about Christmas that are uniquely Christmas. One of the things I've always wanted to do from a young age is go to Europe and drink mulled wine in a Christmas market. Right? And, and so when I got married to Sarah, this beautiful woman, I was like, man, she's an amazing leader, great friend, and I want to take her to Europe and we can enjoy this experience together. For those of you who don't know what mulled wine is, it's like a spicy drink. You make it out of cloves and orange. I tried one year, put in a whole bag of cloves. Apparently, that was a really bad idea. If you know, you know. Uh, but I went to Europe with my wife a couple of years ago. We saved up for a long time, and we went there. And Sarah said, what are you going to do when we get to France, to Paris? And I said, well, the one thing, the one thing for me this whole trip hinges on is, is having some mulled wine on the Champs-Élysées in a Christmas market. And she's like... Really, the whole thing. I said, I do not care what happens the rest of this trip as long as that happens, right? I'm the kind of guy who I believe every moment of the trip needs to be planned. Spontaneity freaks me out. You got to be organized. Anyone else out there? Cool. Who's not like that at all? Never travel with me ever in your life. You would frustrate me because you, what you're banking on is disappointment. I plan joy. And it works really well. So I worked out how to plan joy. I got there, and um, we're walking down the Champs-Élysées, and I'd saved up my own money. And I'm like, man, I'm going to go buy an outfit for this experience. So I went in to uh, H&M back then, and I bought like a nice white shirt. I bought jeans, and I brought a jacket. It's H&M, so it still only cost me like $5. And I walk in down the street, and I'm thinking, I'm looking great. I'm ready for Sarah to take photos of me with my drink. Walk to the Christmas market. There it is. And I see the drink stand. I go and I buy this mulled wine. And we go and we sit down. The Louvre's behind us. The, the Arc de Trump is down the other way. I'm like, I am so ready. I look at my wife. She's beautiful. I'm like, God is real. There is so much proof for that right now. And as I go to go and drink my mulled wine, sweeping my hand back across the table, I hit my cup. It spills. And this mulled wine goes pouring all the way down my front shirt, all over my dreams, all over my dreams and my jeans, both of them in one. 8 a.m. didn't get that. 10 a.m. is where it's at. There's this moment, and I'm like, oh, no, the pressure, the pain, the hecticness of the year, everything came flooding back. And I'm like, my dreams are ruined. This trip sucks. God's not real. He's abandoned me. My wife looks at me, and I said, we're going home. Literally, we hopped up, and we walked back to the hotel. I was like 10 feet in front of her. I'm like pouring like mulled wine. I then you know, asked her for her forgiveness, and then she planned the rest of the trip. And it was a great trip. But what was the point? This kind of is a little bit of an analogy of what I feel is Christmas for most people. We heap a whole bunch of expectation on this season, and then we hit January 1, and we're like, man, Christmas, it just didn't meet my expectations this year. It just, it sucked or it wasn't good. In fact, you get to an age when you're old, and when you're old or, or, you know, a bit more mature or just, you know, anyway, and, and you're in this moment where you realize that you're not excited for Christmas anymore. You're not excited because you're used to disappointment. You know that what Christmas means is Auntie Ethel's bad breath over prawns as you sit across from her. You're used to disappointment that bonbons literally are the worst toys in the world. They're nothing but disappointment. You realize that holidays might fail, that you might not get that Christmas. But we put all this weight. And then, and then on top of that, as Christians, we add this other narrative to it, where I hear this more and more year after year. Christmas is just being secularized. Ah, oh, man, I just get sick of Christmas. It's, it's all about gifts and it's all about the world is stealing our holiday from us. It's funny because actually that's what Christians did first. And we forget this. We make Christmas 
about all these things and then we're disappointed and then we blame the world for making it about something that it's not. When actually, friends, Christmas was never a solely Christian holiday. Thousands of years ago in Europe, what happened, it was called Yuletide. And in Scandinavia, this time of year was a moment when tribes would celebrate the new year coming. They would celebrate their gods. They would burn fires. And all the sparks from the fires would indicate how many calves or pigs they would have born. They would celebrate and worship their gods. In Germany, they would worship Odin at this time of year. And Odin, they believed, would fly. Think if this relates to anyone you might know. Fly across the sky in his chariot, looking down at all the boys and girls to see who had been good or bad and deserving of his wrath or his pleasure in the year to come. Put a beard on the dude, and then we've got Santa. And there's this other moment where in Rome, they would celebrate this time of year, Saturn, Saturnia, or the, the fertility of um, agriculture and children. And they would love this time of year. In fact, this time of year represented for the ancient Romans the birthday of of their God of fertility, and it was their most sacred day of the year as they celebrated their God's birth. Now, I say this because sometimes the Christians, we can be like Easter and Christmas. They're Christian holidays. No, they weren't. What happened was, is that ancient cultures were watching ancient people worship gods that couldn't give them hope, worship structures that had no life, and these Christians around the age of four, around four, 400 AD, they decided, you know what? We need to let people know there is a better story. Now, God loves celebrating. God's all about joy. So we're going to tell them, keep celebrating and enjoying this time of year, but we want to teach you a better story. Friends, it was Christians who stole Christmas, not the other way around. And so if the world is secularizing Christmas, who's to blame? The idea of Christmas is this, is that it was always meant to be a time when we redeemed the narrative, where we didn't let the world sap the joy, the peace, and the hope because we were always about inhabiting a better story, friends. And so I say this gently. Maybe the joy is gone, not because of them, but because of us. Because we've made Christmas about something it's not. I want to go further and say some of us think Christmas is all about family. Can, can, I just, can I say I actually don't think that's the point of the Christian story? Why? Because there are some people this year who will not have family, but I still believe Christmas is good news for them. Some of us think Christmas is about gifts. and It points to a great story, but it's not the point. Because there are some people this year who will get terrible gifts. Some people this year won't get anything at all. But I still believe Christmas is good news for them. The persecuted church might not even be able to worship openly and freely like we do, but I still believe Christmas is good news for them because Christmas is about what we adore. And the problem, friends, is we've let the world teach us to adore things that are fickle and circumstantial. We adore family at Christmas time until our brother or sister says that thing about the way we're raising our children and suddenly Christmas is done. We, we adore gifts at Christmas time until we don't get what we want or someone doesn't like what we give them and suddenly Christmas is done. And what it shows us is the weakness of our adoration, not the problem of Christmas. Our adoration is misdirected. Christmas is an invitation to adore that which is eternal, that which no mandate, no pandemic, that which nothing 
can steal from you. That's the point of Christmas. What are you adoring this year? What are you adoring this year? See, what you adore at Christmas will define how you experience the depth of joy at Christmas. I want to argue that we can learn what to adore from a group of men known the Magi. And in the Bible, we come across the Magi in Matthew chapter 2. Now, you would know the Magi from their kind of historical tropes, such as the three wise men or the three wise king. There's actually nothing in the Bible that indicates there was three of them. There could have been a thousand of them for all that we know. Um, the only reason why they think there was three is because they bought three gifts. But there could have been a thousand and like 997 awkward guys who forgot to bring a gift. Like that, that could have just been how it was. There's nothing to indicate that they were kings. I didn't say that joke in the 8 a.m. I'm so glad it worked in the 10. There's this moment where you're like, ah, oh, it's great. Um, and, there's, and they forgot to bring a gift. And there was nothing to indicate they were kings. They were nobility. But Magi were actually around in the Bible. You will find them first in the book of Genesis around the court of Pharaoh when Joseph goes to Egypt. You'll also find them again in the book of Daniel around Daniel when King Nebuchadnezzar wants people to bring uh, to interpret his dreams. Magi were wise men. And we step into this story as, as Magi, we don't know how many, come in to the city of Jerusalem. We read this. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Now we know this story. So many of us know this story. Some of you may not know this story, but you will have seen images of three dudes on camels walking towards the nativity scene at some stage, more than likely. But the problem is, is that with the Christmas story, friends, we get so familiar, we think it's about nice images and we fail to be confronted by the brutal reality of what's going on here. Now three, once again, there's not three. I've got it in my head that there was three of them. A group of men come from the east, from a different kingdom. And they come into Palestine at that stage, which is what the Roman Empire understood it as. And they walk into Jerusalem, these men who have no bearing. And they ask a question, where is the king where is the baby who has been born king of the Jews? This is really confusing and almost insulting because they don't go to the palace. They don't go looking for where the king should be. It's almost like if someone was standing out in the courtyard whilst I'm preaching and going, where is the preacher? The one who should be preaching. And you would go, oh, he's just inside preaching. No, 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 no. Where is the real preacher? I'd probably I'd be like, what have I done wrong? Like, that's, that's really offensive. And you'd all be confused. That's kind of what's happening here. These guys rock up out of nowhere and start asking questions, and people know who the king is. His name was Herod, and he lived in the palace in Jerusalem. So it's not that there wasn't a king on a throne, but for some reason it wasn't the king they were looking for. These men were courageous and they come with a story, a uh, question, sorry. If I had to give you a title for today's sermon, it would just simply this. Where is the king? Now, what do you think Herod's reaction was when he heard this? What do you think Herod's reaction was when he heard this? Well, the Bible tells us, rightly so, King Herod heard this and he was disturbed. Everyone say disturbed. disturbed. Have you ever been disturbed? You've never been disturbed like King Herod was disturbed. And it's a good thing. Because King Herod wasn't a good guy. See, King Herod 
isn't just a king from Rome who was involved in the Christmas story. He was actually a man who was known as the best friend of a guy named Mark Antony. Mark Antony was the leader of, of part of the civil war against uh, the Caesar Augustus. And Mark Antony and Caesar Augustus battled each other to who would rule Rome after Julius Caesar. Caesar Augustus beat Mark Antony, which meant that King Herod, his best friend, was in trouble in Jerusalem. But when Caesar Augustus came to Jerusalem to, to instigate his rule, he kept King Herod where he was, not because King Herod supported him during the civil war, but because King Herod was so good at what he did, suppressing the Jewish people. Because he was a good leader? Because he was a nice guy? Because they respected him? No. King Herod was not a good person. He was kept as king of Jerusalem because he was cruel and he oppressed people. King Herod was gifted politically. He was intensely loyal. He was able to administrate so well that he led the region through a famine. But towards the later years of his life, when we interact with him in this story, the, the, the historians say that he suffered a mental illness that compounded his paranoia and turned to cruelty and fits of rage and jealously killed his close associates, which just sounds like you know, a war epic at this stage, but it goes on. It was so significant and so uh, corrupted was King Herod that if he was jealous or, or felt threatened by anybody, their life was ended, including when he murdered his wife, whom he loved, Miriam, and her mother, Alexandria, his elder son, Antipater, and their two other sons, all because he felt threatened by their existence that they were looking for his throne. He rewrote his will a whole bunch of times as he kept trying to make sure his legacy and his power kept going. King Herod had 10 wives, 14 children, a lot of whom met a bad demise. When he came into Jerusalem, he actually began to, to, to kill all the ruling class, the Sanhedrin of the Jewish religious structure. And in one moment, he killed 300 of their clergy all because that's how he took power. When Caesar Augustus was asked about King Herod, he said this, it was safer to be Herod's pig than Herod's son because you would live longer. Now, we walk into the Christmas story like, oh, the mulled wine thing was a lot more comfortable. This is confronting. I want to be clear here, before Christmas can be comfortable or comforting, it must first be confronting. The purpose of Christmas, friends, isn't that you might be comforted, but first confronted with a harsh reality. That what happens in Jerusalem in this moment is the King Herod hears that heaven is invading earth and his kingdom is at risk. He hears this man who would kill his own son to hold on to his throne. Here's another baby has been born, claimed to be king of the Jews. How do you think he's going to react? When you hear that King Herod was disturbed, you understand the next line. And all Jerusalem were disturbed with him, probably because they were afraid of what he was about to do. But Jerusalem, I believe, was also disturbed because they were in a moment of messianic upheaval. You know, it's been 700 years since Israel had had a king, about 500 years since Judah had had a king. And this is a period after 400 years where they haven't heard from God or seen God move in a mighty way. And they knew that around this time they were expecting the Messiah, the one to come who would deliver Israel out. But they were weary of messiahs. See, in the years around this time, there'd been many messiahs rise up and begin to claim that they were the ones to take on Rome. But the Jewish people had seen each of these so-called messiahs crucified along with their followers 
and their revolution put down. Jerusalem was disturbed because it was a powder keg that could go off at any moment. A little bit different than three dudes riding a camel and saying, where's the baby? Where is the king? But not only are they asking, where is the king? King Herod wants to know a different question. Who is the king? When he had called together all the prophets and the chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem, in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least amongst the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. What happens is King Herod calls together all the religious rulers and he says, where is that Messiah? Where is that king that you're waiting on? Where will he be born? Here's what's interesting. The religious leaders tell him that in the book of Micah, the prophet Micah actually says, in Bethlehem, the Messiah will be born. So King Herod now knows where, but he also knows who. Because you see, the Old Testament was filled with prophecies about this coming king. But it was also filled with descriptions of what this coming king would be like. And his king is deliberately juxtaposed against King Herod. This king is nothing like King Herod. In fact, another prophecy says in Isaiah chapter 9 what this king will do. He says that this king of the Jews, Isaiah prophesies that the people walking in darkness who have seen a great light, on those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. Why? For unto us a child is born, declares Isaiah. To us a son is given, he says, hundreds of years before Christ's birth. And the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. This moment is pregnant with purpose. The Old Testament has been testifying and prophesying about what is about to happen. And that weight descends upon Jerusalem and King Herod. This is the Normandy of the kingdom of heaven's plan for the world. It's D-Day. They've made their invasion of earth. And it's in the form of a baby in Bethlehem. So what happens next? Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. What is this story about? What's the point here? Are we really just trying to learn about frankincense, gold, and myrrh? I actually think that's actually a really key part of this story. If you go and research each of these elements, they prophetically claim something over this baby. Gold, funeral. There's this beautiful nature of what they do. But I don't want to touch on that today. Because I want to talk about another reason I think this story is important for us. Because in this story you see three reactions. Three reactions that I think are present in this room today when we talk about Christmas. Three reactions oh, that are present in this room today when we talk about Jesus. Three reactions that are present in this story. We see the reaction of indifference, the reaction of opposition, and the reaction of adoration. 
I wonder which one describes your approach to Christmas this year. Indifference? Opposition or rejection? Or adoration? See, how you respond to Christmas ultimately comes from your ability to answer two questions. Who is the king? And where is the king? The first reaction is indifference. And this is confusing. Indifference means not really caring, not really putting effort into understanding what's going on. It's like, ah, that's fine. Maybe some of you are indifferent towards Christmas this year. Maybe you're here today and you're indifferent towards Christmas, Christianity, and Jesus. Because you know what? You don't believe in any of this. You're not sure it matters or impacts upon you. And I just want to say thank you so much for joining us today. I'm not sure how you're here or why you're here, but you're so welcome in this place. You don't have to believe to belong in your life. But, but I would suggest to learn from the story about what happens to those who are indifferent. Who was indifferent in the story? The religious leaders. See, these Pharisees and these Sadducees, these guys, these, these prophets or these people that King Herod gather around him, he says, where is the king meant to be born? And they've heard the proclamation of the Magi be, where is the king? They know what's happening. But you know what fascinates me? None of them hop on a donkey or horse or camel or wherever they got around back in those days and go to Bethlehem. It's almost like they're like, he'll be born in Bethlehem. King Herod's like, thanks. They're like, no worries. And they walk off. Some of you are indifferent. You know what Christmas is about in the Christian story, but it just doesn't mean anything to you or matter anything to you. But here's the problem with that. You first got to ask this question, is Jesus real? And did this happen? Because the problem that the religious leaders face is that Jesus doesn't go away because you forget about him. He doesn't go away because you forget about him. See, indifference of the religious leaders would lead them to ignore the very baby who would grow up and cause the greatest disruption to their religion. I just spat a lot there. So you're really lucky that you're not sitting in the front row or you chose to be online today. Good decision. Jesus doesn't go away when ignored, friends. He continues to be an eternal disruption. How do we know this? The baby they forgot about would grow up to be the Messiah they had to kill. But he didn't even stay dead. He rose again. And I was going to tell you today, as a, as a moment of compassionate heart from me to you, if you don't believe in Jesus, that doesn't mean he's not real and he won't disrupt your life at some moment, if not now. You have to answer the question, what is going on here? Do I believe it happened? John Piper says, the sheer silence and inactivity of the leaders is overwhelming in view of the magnitude of what was happening. Friends, if you don't believe in Jesus today, the Christmas story confronts you with a question, is this true? And I don't care, doesn't mean it goes away. Some of you are here today though, and you are Christians and you don't care. And I don't know what it is. I don't know if it was Hallmark, your Aunt Ethel, or a bad Christmas gift that stole your joy. Maybe it was the disappointment of 2020 and not knowing how we're going to celebrate this. Maybe you're just worried all the time and it's just difficult for you to enjoy this season. But I just want to say, as Christians, this is such an important moment of our year that we cannot allow the excuse of the world stole my joy to justify why we will not acknowledge who Jesus is and what he came to do and adore him for it. Friends, it doesn't matter 
if your family rocks up or doesn't, if Christmas gifts come or doesn't, when you know that there is an eternal king who provides you a hope that whatever pain or suffering you're walking through right now, it is not the end of the story. That's why no matter how bad this Christmas might be or how great this Christmas might be, we can all equally adore and rejoice together. Not only is there a reaction of indifference, but there is also a reaction of rejection. Because you see, here's what I actually believe. If you truly understand what Christmas is and what the message is, then there are actually genuinely only two responses. People are indifferent because they don't understand. If that's you today, I just want to encourage you, find out what, why this Christmas story is so important. But if you know, then there are actually only two options in the way we respond. It's either violent rejection or humble adoration. See, we come to Herod who upon hearing the reality of a newborn king reacted. And on the surface, what does he go? He said, tell me where he is. I have a desire to worship him. Friends, even Herod can pretend to worship. But what happens in Herod's heart is so important. Deep down in his heart, he feels threatened. He feels insecure. He feels challenged. We can look at Herod and be like, this guy's a pretty bad guy. Like, I'm so glad. You know, some of you are sitting here going, my family's not as bad as I thought it was, you know. None of them want to kill me yet, so praise God for my family. I thought that was pretty dysfunctional. At least I'm not a Herod. That's awesome. And we can kind of distance ourselves cognitively from who Herod is and what he does. But I want to suggest today, I wonder if there's a little Herod in all of us. Let me say that again. I wonder if there's a little bit of Herod in all of us. Maybe not the psychopathic, insecure regent of Rome, but when we're faced with the idea of a God who claims allegiance, who says, come, follow me, not with part of your life, but with all of your life. When we're faced with the reality of a king who came as a baby, rose to be a man who was the Messiah of the world, now sits on the throne of the universe and says, I'm your king, not a part of your life, of all of your life. Some of us don't like that. In fact, Timothy Keller says it like this, where is the king is this question is the most disturbing question possible to a human heart. Since we all want at all costs to remain on the throne of our own lives. We may use religion, a church attendance, if you will, to stay on that throne, trying to put God in the position of having to do our bidding because we are so righteous. God, you own me. I rocked up to church today. You better do what I want. Rather than serving him unconditionally. Or we may... We may flee from religion, becoming atheists, and loudly claim that there is no God. Either way, we're both experiencing our natural hostility. We're both expressing our natural hostility to the lordship of the true king. I think the truth is, friends, I think we need to proverbially agree that the Magi come into all of our hearts, the throne room of our souls, and say, Where is the king? And some of us are sitting on the throne. And we're challenged by the reality that it's not us. See, this is the point of the problem. The point of the Christmas, Christian, Christmas story is not that we, we hate on a king, but we realize the problem is in the human heart. In the book of Genesis, when Adam and Eve choose to eat the, the, the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, what happens in that moment is not them receiving knowledge of good and evil. In that moment, what they're saying is, I refuse to agree that God gets to decide what is right and what is wrong. I want that responsibility. Moral autonomy the actual pandemic of our time, where what's right for you is right for you, what's right for me is right for me. Don't you dare challenge 
We want self-autonomy from any systems or any structures, and we think it works, and the world says it doesn't. The moral authority of the world is the, most, is the largest amount of people together at one time screaming the same message and claiming it that, it, that it's truth. This is the heart of the human problem, is saying, who are you to be my king? I am king. I am queen over my life. And friends, here's what I just want to ask. Is it working? Are you good enough? Do you have enough knowledge and wisdom and righteousness and holiness to be king of your throne of your heart? The Bible suggests that that's the problem and that no, you don't. But the reason some of us are like, well, God can be king of one hour on Sunday and God, you know, he can be king of my, my children when they're mucking up and I've got to tell them, hey, you better listen to mom and dad because that's what the Bible says, but not of my finances, not of my sexual decisions, not of how I treat people at work, not of this, not of that. And it's like, hang on. The very thing that got you in the problem in the first place was that you thought that you were more wiser and better and able than God was to rule the world. This is why Timothy Keller goes on to say in the book, when you come to Christ, you must drop your conditions. You have to give up the right to say, I will obey you if, or I will do this if. As soon as you say, I will obey you if, that is not obedience at all. You are saying, you are my advisor, not my Lord. I'll be happy to take your recommendations. Feel free to fill out the form and pop it in the slot. It'll be reviewed on Tuesday. And I might even do some of them. No, if you want Jesus with you, you have to give up the right to self-determination. Listen to this, friends. Write this online if you can. Self-denial is an act of rebellion against our late modern culture of self-assertion. But that is what we are called to. Nothing less. What's the problem of Herod? There's a baby who the prophecies say, he will be a better king than you. And what's Herod's decision? He wants to suppress, oppress, and actually goes on to commit infanticide, trying to wipe out a whole generation of newborns that this king might not threaten his throne. Friends, we do that when we silence the voice of Christ, when we run from him because we disagree and you might be seeing today, being like, man, I came to church and I've heard that Jesus is my king. I have to obey. This feels like law. This feels like a pressure. This, this feels like a weight. And the only way I can free you from that isn't by telling you you don't have to obey Jesus as king to follow him. It's by telling you of what kind of king Jesus is. See, the Magi respond differently. They respond with adoration. These noblemen from the Middle East, in fact, from East, in fact, many theologians believe they were from Babylon and that they may very well have had uh, access to the prophecies of Daniel from his time in Babylon. So they knew, they understood, they were waiting for the signs. That these men from the, Middle East, from, the, from the East, these wise men, had seen omens, had seen the stars, and they go, there is something coming that we so desperately need. So they don't run from the baby in Jerusalem, they run towards him because they recognize something so powerful. Maybe they've seen empires rise and fall and men and women commit stupid decisions and their heart is longing that the prophecies would be true. And what do the prophecies say? The prophecies don't speak of a king who oppresses. The prophecies don't speak of a king who subjugates, who rules with an iron fist but with nail-pierced hands. The prophecies don't talk of a king who stands and demands but walks and invites. The prophecies say that this baby will rise up and pigs will not be better off than sons, but enemies will be made sons and daughters because of his death and his resurrection. These wise men, they come and they adore him. Why? Because they choose to believe that this is a different king. 
So many of us, when we hear that Jesus is the king of our life, we think about the rulers and authorities of our present age, and we cast those aspersion on Christ. We even think about pastors or churches that have hurt us with their rules and their religion and their legality. But this is a different king. How do we know? Where did they find him? Did they find him in a private hospital? Waited on hands and feet? No, they found him in a manger amongst the dirt and the crap of animals. Probably shouldn't have said that word on stage. I just want to confess that so you don't come up to me after service. In the muck with a teenage girl and his, her confused husband. And, and it's weird and it's awkward. And it's exactly the narrative that God wants to paint. We see a king who gave up heaven, gave up riches, gave up comfort, gave away his rights, gave away what he deserved, which none of us are very good at, that you might get not what you deserve, but what he has longed for you. That you might get life and life to the full. There are some people here today who came in burdened. God doesn't want you to leave burdened, but free. He came as an invading force of heaven, not with chariots and armies but with love and eyes filled with the fire of grace, saying, if only my people would know my love for them. This is the king that we serve. How has every other kingdom ever been established? Well, these days through geopolitical warfare, through digital warfare, in ancient days with chariots and armies and massacres and manipulation with politics and, and behind-the-scenes deals. This is not how heaven works and not this king. This king is different only Jesus says, I have come not for the mighty, but the lowly. I have come not for the gold medal winners, but those who the world has rejected. I have come to form my kingdom filled with outcasts and call them home. This is a good king. This baby is worthy to be adored. He was one who didn't come with armies into Jerusalem, but with 12 outcasts, one of whom was a terrorist. He was a king who did not chase tables of powerful people or Instagram profiles of influence, but he came and ushered communities of sinners to gather around him and know belonging and grace. He was a king who didn't ride on chariots, but on donkeys. He wasn't crowned with gold, but he was crowned with thorns. He was a king who left his heavenly throne and put on flesh. He wasn't applauded, but spat upon and ridiculed, and he never deviated from his mission. He was the king who was pierced for our transgressions and broken for our shame. And he's a king who looks at you today and says, your adoration is weak because it is filled with things of the world that will fail you. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. And I am coming again for my people. This is the beauty of the Christian story. And I know from my personal testimony, this is a king who can be trusted. This is a king worthy of worship. What I love is when we read these words of St. Augustine who teaches us how to worship the king as the band comes. He was created of a mother whom he created. He was carried by the hands that he formed. He cried to the man in a manger, the wordless infancy. He the word, without whom all human eloquence is mute. Charles Spurgeon says, infinite yet infant, eternal and yet born of a woman, almighty and yet hanging on a woman's breast, supporting a universe and yet, and yet needing to be carried in a mother's arms, king of angels and yet the reputed son of Joseph, heir of all things and yet the carpenter's despised son. Why do I say this to you today? 
Jesus doesn't need your adoration. You need to adore Christ. Why? Because only he can save. Only he can redeem. And he is the only sure thing this Christmas. It's him. And so I just want to ask you a really basic question today. If the Magi were to come into your heart and to ask that question, where is the king? What's your response? He advises me sometimes, but you know, I'm just not, you know, I'm really not one of those religious types, so you know, I just kind of I make up my own decisions. Where is the king? Where is the one who gave it all? So you might have it all. Is he in his rightful place and do you see him rightly? Before Christmas can be comforting, it must, must, first must be confronting. Because this kingdom, friends, is not a kingdom that will fade. It is a kingdom that will last. And all are given an invitation. And your invitation awaits today. Where is the king? Would you stand with us? So we're going to finish now. We're singing we restructured our services, so we're going to sing a couple songs. We're going to finish with this great song. It's called All Hail King Jesus. So now we have to do it. You know, I'll just, I'll just say this. that There's some of you here today questioning. You're like, God, I don't know if you're real. You know what's going to make him real isn't Michael. It's the Holy Spirit. So it's going to create space that maybe you need a better story this Christmas. Maybe you're online and you're sitting there, you're lonely and you're lost and you're, you're, you're abandoned. Maybe you're in this room and you've been the king of your life and you've been in charge and God is saying, just let go, pry your fingers free. Allow me in to sit on the throne. I am a better ruler and I am for you. I am for you. I am for you. Some of you need to repent of your indifference. Repentance isn't a cruel thing. It's a beautiful thing. It's, it's saying, God, I no longer carry this weight. And God says, you don't have to. Come with me. My kindness is for you. Some of us just need to rest in the presence of the king and adore him again. So would you just open your hands? Like If you feel comfortable, just open your hands up in front of you. Hey, if you feel real comfortable during this worship set, I encourage you to raise your hands at some stage. We're going to sing now. I'm going to worship. And some of you today, you don't feel it. You're just like, I don't want to do this, man. I just, I'm just not here. That's okay. Can I just encourage you? Why don't you just receive? So, there are men and women of faith. We're going to adore Christ and just let it wash over you. Maybe your gaze might be averted to the King. So, Father, right now, we just, we just create space. Holy Spirit, Come and do what only you can. Speak. That lost person right now who's wondering if this is good enough to be true, Jesus is calling you home. Come, turn, repent, and believe. That person right now who thinks Christmas is going to be the same, Jesus, fresh revelation in mighty name. And Father, if we are ready to adore you, we join with angels. And we adore that which cannot be changed or taken away, cannot be legislated, imprisoned, cannot be stopped, killed, or squashed. We adore the mighty name of Jesus Christ. 
just for this moment, just stay. James is going to lead us in a moment of just reflective worship on piano, and then Beck's going to just come and powerfully lead us into Come All Ye Faithful. I also want to encourage you guys. You were here on J35. Are you expectant? Lean in. Don't lean back. Let, us, let the praises of the saints rise to the one worthy of praise. If you're online, sing so loud someone calls the cops. Let's worship and adore the one worthy of praise today. Thanks, James.